0: Hey, welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Hamilton City Council has denied the lifeline to the city's Sobe bike share program after a marathon session yesterday. We'll talk about the impact that's going to have. Waste collection in Hamilton is about to increase by 15%. Some councillors think it's a sign that the city is headed for some rather serious money troubles. And yesterday, Premier Doug Ford said the Ontario government is taking over five long-term care homes that were at the center of that military report that was issued earlier this week. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today, on the Bill Kelly Show, on 900 CHML. Sixteen hours long, uh, in an 8-to-8 a eight eight vote Thursday, it was actually early morning, this morning, when they finally decided on this. Uh, City Council basically decided to uh, mothball the Sobe bike program. You probably remember the background on this now, is that uh, they started this program a while ago. It was actually being run by Uber. We own, apparently, the bikes and everything else, the infrastructure uh, but they ran the program. Well, they pulled their plug on that, and council was faced with a decision about what to do, and uh, it got pretty heated sometimes. And uh, as you might expect with an eight-to-eight vote, there's some pretty strong opinions on both sides. In favor of actually sen- spending about four hundred thousand dollars to keep the program alive for at least the end of the year was Ward Three Councilor Narinda Nan. This is what she had to say:
1: What we're supposed to be doing is leading and providing safe opportunities for people to physically distance. And move around the city in the way that they need to, to get the essential services that they need, to get to and from work. And we've just taken that away
2: from 26,000 subscribers.
0: On the other side of the uh, debate, uh, Ward 5 Councillor Chad Collins felt this way.
2: I think the laissez-faire approach to the city's
1: finances is regrettable. It's actually embarrassing. We're financially adrift right now. And as a collective, we are fiscally leaderless and completely out of touch with what's going on around us.
0: Uh, pretty strong words uh, from both sides of the issue here. And like I say, with an 8 eight vote, of course, the motion to uh, spend the money uh, was defeated. Uh, it always is on a tie vote like that. So uh, the program is essentially dead. And I guess we're going to go put these things in a warehouse someplace. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Elise Desjardins, who is a, a member of Cycle Hamilton. She's a grad student at McMaster University here in town and and obviously a very strong advocate for this. Uh, Elise, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us this morning.
2: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: I hope you didn't stay up and watch this whole thing last night uh, City Council. I mean, there's marathons and there's marathons. This was a little bit on the ridiculous side. Uh, right off the bat, give me your, your read on, on what Council decided last night and the ramifications of it.
2: Um, I was up last night, actually. I stayed up to watch the whole <laughs> you're, you're a trooper. <laughs> um, and I, it's uh, incredibly disappointing that in three short days Hamilton will lose an essential piece of its transportation infrastructure
0: there's the numbers here are intriguing and and i know i remember the debate and the discussion that was going on a few years ago now when council finally decided to go along with this and the, and they did it kind of begrudgingly thinking well okay i guess we can do this for the time being uh but the program i, I think we have to even for those that don't use the program I have to admit that th- it was an overwhelming success wasn't it
2: Oh, absolutely. And, and Councillor Nan's motion explicitly outlined that the bike share program is one of the most successful bike share systems in North America and that it supports Canada's first bike share equity program. So there's vast amounts of data that show the positive impact that this program has on our community. Um, and we certainly heard um, lots of wonderful stories from our petition as well about how much bike share means to Hamiltonians.
0: Well, even, you know, as I said, no, I don't use the program, but I mean I don't live in the downtown area, which is where the program actually takes place. But I see it on a daily basis. I mean, you know, even in the west end of the city where our radio station is, there's a couple of uh, of the Sobe stations uh, within a couple of blocks there constantly being used uh, by people. And it's not just university students. I see people of all shapes and sizes really uh, using the bikes. And so I, 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 I'm a little flummoxed to understand why some counselors don't seem to understand the importance of it.
2: I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, the infrastructure is in the lower city, but it's not exclos- exclusively used by lower city um, residents. Oh, no. You know, no. We, we see, um, you know, we've heard from from visitors to Hamilton who report using the bike share system. People who work or spend time in the service area have access to these bikes to get to meetings or to run errands, um, and, and so it, it does serve so many different you know, types of people who use it for so many different reasons, and it's an incredibly vital and essential service for Hamiltonians. So I, I agree that it's incredibly disappointing that this decision was made um, in light of the fact that, you know, um, it, it people rely on it for essential transportation.
0: Yeah, this is not just leisurely activity or recreational activity. Uh, This is from getting from point A to point B oftentimes, which is the essence of the program. You know, would you pick up the bike if you have to go downtown or whatever the case might be? I remember talking with Max Kerman, of course, uh, a couple of years ago when they were doing the rally at uh, Tim Hortons Field. And and they took took so many bikes down to the stadium for the concert that night, you know, because he's a strong believer in public transportation and in cycling. And uh, that's only one example of so many that we use like this. Uh, yet, I heard so many comments from some of the councillors yesterday. They just don't seem to understand who relies on this and the number of people that do rely on this.
2: Well, I think that there's been a vast amount of data presented to council about who relies on it, and mm-hmm. um, we 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 heard that over 600 um, new members have subscribed since since the pandemic and. Um, there have been tons of stories shared on social media. Um, you know, we've encouraged people to email their counselors to tell them why bike share is important. Um, and, and you're absolutely right that you know the, the Arkell's example is one example of you know of how access to bikes you know can facilitate so many different trips. And you know, I um, I if I'm downtown and you know the bus is running late or I you know it's it's just faster for me to bike. I can pick up a bike. There are so many benefits to it, not just the students. Um, and so it's uh, it's unfortunate, you know, that um, uh, this decision was made, and you know, against the wants and the needs of the, of the Hamilton community who voiced support for the bike share system.
0: At least let me ask you right up front, from a philosophical basis, are you upset? I mean, you remember a member of Cycle Hamilton, so clearly you're a you're a believer in in this system. Uh, Multimodal transportation is something that we've talked about here in the city, and we talk about public transportation, and that includes HSR. and We've had our challenges certainly with that. Uh, road infrastructure, you know, we can talk about LRT, or which may or may not be happening. We still don't know what's going on with that. But cycling infrastructure and, and using cycling as a mode of transportation doesn't seem to have the strong support of city council. Uh, anytime they've talked about putting bike lanes in on Cannon Street or anyplace else, there's always a pushback here. Does, it, that must be very frustrating for you.
2: Um, yeah, I, I, I personally find it very frustrating. Um, and I, I think that um, the, the resistance to accept cycling and to provide space for it on our streets Um, is incredibly frustrating for people who rely on this mode of transportation. You know, and in the petition that we had, we heard so many examples that I really resonate with, you know, as a sobi user. You know, we heard about how it's affordable, and I I totally get that as a student, that I have access to these bikes and it's something that I can rely on. We heard about how it's great for um, people who come to visit, how it's important for the low-income community, or the low-income population in our community. Um, So cycling is is healthy it's um it's inexpensive it provides economic benefits to our communities so i I find it i find it frustrating when these these, this evidence is presented and there is continued decisions against it in light of the fact that so many people are supportive of it um and so I, i i personally would like to see um more support for cycling uh in hamilton and uh i um and it's just incredibly disappointing as a Toby user. You know what? You know the decision that was that was made last night.
0: I mean, the elemental problem here is, is share the road. Why can't we just share the road? And there are just some councillors who just don't seem to understand that. And if they're not cyclists, well, that's fine. But many people are. And, you know, And I, I'm not going to go down the list of benefits. You know what they are, and I think most of our listeners know what they are. It's healthy for you, as you say. It's it's a mode of transportation. It's very inexpensive. Uh, and I've heard some people just dismissively say, well, if you want that, go buy a bike and get a second-hand bike someplace. Some people can't afford that. But they can rent one uh, for the odd time that they would need one and then just leave it wherever they have to be at a Sobe stand and bingo. So it made sense. I, I guess the other frustration, and since you stayed up and watched the whole thing last night, the city council marathon session, is what was being proposed here uh, was the the three downtown councillors in the, in the west well councillor Farr, councillor Nan councillor Wilson wards one two and three basically said look we get this it's almost a million dollars of money that they get every year of course as a result of of, of the distribution of, of money because of what's going on with the uh, uh, different prospects of the taxation here and they they're supposed to spend this on infrastructure and they proposed four hundred thousand dollars of their money from those th- that that pot of money. To, to fund the program, and their their council colleagues said, "No, we don't want to do that." Well, that's that's kind of like mowing somebody else's lawn, isn't it? I mean, if they want to spend their money on that, which is infrastructure, it's, it's cycling infrastructure. I, I don't understand why councillors didn't say, "Go ahead, knock yourself out." I what what's the problem with it?
2: Um, well, I think I think this relates to your previous question as well about um, lack of support for cycling in Hamilton, and so um, it's, it's my opinion that 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 played into the decision, um, for sure. Um, and, and not only, you know, was there, um, you know, voting against the use of area rating fundings for this, but there were so many other, um, groups who also wrote written delegations as well in support of this, you know, the Hamilton center for civic inclusion, a few groups from McMaster, the student union. So these are people who, who live in the service area and who wrote about its benefits. So, um, it's my opinion that to, to disregard um, the uh, those those delegations, you know, who supported it is just it's it's incredibly frustrating. You know, we we had an opportunity to make a strategic investment in transportation infrastructure that will serve thousands during a pandemic. You know, and there was some talk yesterday about uh, you know there being a bike shortage in Canada. You know, and and that's true, and we we see that across the country and. Cycling is increasing in popularity, you know, maintain physical activity, keep, you know, keep doing essential trips when public transit capacity is reduced or people feel that transit isn't an option for them. So it's just incredibly disappointing to ignore the vast amounts of data and, you know, for, for the motion to say, you know, we're going to use this, it's not even, it wouldn't just benefit wards one, two, and three, it would benefit all of the users who use that system, which as we know, don't live in wards one, two, and three. So it's, 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 Baffling to me that um, that that strong um, show of leadership um, wasn't wasn't successful because it, by voting to um, continue the funding in the interim, it would have brought benefit citywide. So I'm I'm personally very very disappointed.
0: Well, especially because, and I want to remind our listeners, the intent of the motion that was defeated uh, last night or early this morning, actually. Was to use this $400,000, you know, some from each one of those three wards, from those three councillors, just to keep the program alive till the end of the year. In other words, to buy some time, to see if there's, you know, perhaps somebody else that can jump on board here. Uh, and, and it's going to be a lot more difficult to do that if you've just mothballed the whole operation and said, we're not even going to do this anymore. Uh, it's pretty hard to go looking for partners in a situation like that because if, if, if I get that phone call and say, hey, you know, do you want to be a partner with the city? The first thing I'm going to say, well, where's your commitment to it?
2: that that's a really great point you know to vote, the the motion was to fund the system in the interim and that would have enabled um, uh, that would have enabled the city to keep those 900 bikes and to keep a successful bike share system in operation right now Um, and so I'll reiterate that the decision was very short-sighted and that we should be willing to make strategic investments in transportation infrastructure it's essential and you know, the way that we're seeing, it's not even just in Canada. Like across the world, cycling is on the rise. So mm-hmm. what a great opportunity for the city to have shown support for cycling and to say we we see where the trends are going, and we 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 expect that to you know to continue happening here in Hamilton. Um, I live on a signed route, and I see so many people cycling every single day. um and and part of the reason why I, I wanted to study cycling um, in my graduate program was because, um, I, I see the tremendous support that um, uh, cyclists in Hamilton have for making the city better and for making it more um, friendly for cycling. So it's um, yeah, it's incredibly disappointing. And I mean, uh, I uh, I'm, I'm I'm happy that there there is uh, now direction to continue looking for a third party operator. But to have these bikes stop working in a few days is just um, it's incredibly sad, and it will definitely impact my my ability to um, to make essential trips and to um, travel in Hamilton.
0: One of the problems, and this is part of the debate that we had way back when, when council first decided to at least take a run at this program, uh, was that a lot of people I've heard that said, "Look, it, I'd I'd love to cycle a lot more, but I they don't feel safe on the roads because a lot of drivers do not share the road properly." And and I as as some I I, I share that frankly because you can't just paint a white line you know six inches away from the curb and say well there's your cycling lane I mean there's got to be some infrastructure in place, and we started to get that message I think, and now it just seems as if if councils just abandon this and I listen I totally understand where Councillor Collins and some of the other people that spoke against this are feeling about the financial crisis, but because we're in a financial crisis that means you have to spend whatever money you're going to spend wisely, and and road infrastructure and transportation infrastructure. Fits that category. I don't understand why they don't understand that that's this can be and should be a priority.
2: Yeah, I I, I totally agree with you that it it's a it would be a wise decision to uh, to have continued funding bike share in the interim. Um, one of the Environment Hamilton board members, Ryan McGreal, um, in in the in the written delegation to council, it was noted that bike share um, is six hundred thousand, which is less than the annual operating costs for two buses and with the bike share system supporting 350,000 passenger trips last year that's an operating cost per passenger trip of a dollar and 71 cents so it's incredibly cost effective it brings benefits to our community um, and uh, now we have to store the bikes which is also going to be a cost to the taxpayer i think it's supposed to be something like 130,000 um, plus additional costs to, to, you know, to take it down. So regardless, we're spending money, um, except for spending it, in my opinion, in the wrong way, that money could have have been spent to continue offering this essential service to Hamiltonians. Um, and instead, during a bike shortage and during a pandemic, those bikes um, are going to be stored away.
0: Well, notwithstanding the council decision, I, this is not the end of this. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more discussion about this, certainly within the community. Uh, least, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for uh, joining us on the program, and uh, let's stay in touch as this uh, develops, hopefully, in a positive way over the next little while.
2: Thank you so much for having me on the show, and uh, I want to reiterate that um, if, if anyone wants to support Cycle Hamilton's efforts and continuing this conversation, you can feel free to reach out to uh, our organization, and uh, we'll be happy to involve you in that.
0: Sure. Just Google Cycle Hamilton and uh, all the information will be there. Take care, Elise. We'll talk again soon. Take care.
2: Bye now.
0: Elise Desjardins from Cycle Hamilton. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Another very, very uh, controversial decision uh, the council is going to have to make here has to do with waste collection. Uh, Just by way of background, uh, some of the city, of course, is served uh, by city employees that do garbage pickup. Basically in the inner city downtown. Uh, and uh, in some of the other areas, too. But the uh, outlying areas, for the most part, it's all private sector. This is a private company. And, uh, well, it's time for contract renewal. And, uh, boy, you talk about an eye-opening experience. Apparently, City Council got some sticker shock here. Uh, They're being asked to award a seven-year contract to this company, GFL, uh, who just picked up my garbage, in fact, about 10 minutes ago, uh, for a 15% increase in cost. That's ridiculously high. Councillor Lloyd Ferguson from Lancaster uh, in this area here uh, joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this. Uh, Councillor, thanks for the time. How are you doing today?
3: I'm doing fine. It's, uh, it's been a long time since I've been on your show.
0: It has been. Well, you know these marathon sessions. I mean, guys, you know, <laughs> you're going to do these these long sessions like this. You yeah. know, a 16-hour meeting because like I'm well, glad well, we don't pay you guys by the hour, Lloyd. But I mean, <laughs> but it's, well, it's good to have you hours,
3: here. And hours, and if you want to take advantage of me, today's a good time because I only got four hours of sleep.
0: There you go. There you go. Uh, well, you, your reputation on council is this frugal Fergie. You're the guy that likes to watch the nickels and dimes, of course. Uh, what was your reaction when you saw this, this contract proposal with this huge, huge increase?
3: Well, my reaction was, here we go again. And, and uh, the taxpayers are really going to get beat up. In a, you know, coronavirus is, is it's very forecasted right now. It will probably go up as a $60 million hit to us. Yeah. Then you, you move on to the insurance. Our insurance, which is a big number, they just increased their premiums by 17% with only one bidder. Then we go to the municipal recycling facility, which was renewed um, to, to GFL. That's it's short for Green for Life um, back in February, and it has a 40% increase. And then we got this collection contract that closed, essentially only one bidder. There's a second fringe bidder, and they're up 15%. And then we got the judicial review staring us down, which is gonna probably now going to run to $10 million, uh, despite the fact that the speed's been reduced, there's no serious accidents since February of last year, the whole thing's been repaved, and the police have done a good job on enforcement. So all this stuff is staring us down, and it's going to have a horrendous impact on the 2020-2021 budget. And so I try to push hard to get it referred back, to have staff come back with a firm number on taking it in hubs. Because right now, about 50% of the garbage and green bin collection is done by city staff, and the other 50% is done by the private sector, which in this case is green for life. But there wasn't an appetite on council. They thought uh, with only a year to tool up, there wasn't enough time. So I got outvoted this, and the contract was awarded last night.
0: But let's let's talk about the cost, and and maybe let's back up a little bit and talk about why uh, that division occurs. Uh, because there was some discussion years and years ago. I think actually I was I was still in council when they started doing this uh, about you know the cost of waste of collection, and uh, there was a strong move by some of the councillors, as you recall, Lloyd, to say, well, let's just get private sector to do the whole thing, and the compromise was, all right, we'll split it, uh, yeah. and I was just say That's the good. the inner city wards get the the, the city people doing it, and this is, the, of course, uh, where our, we are here in Lancaster and many of the other outlying areas. Uh, we have GFL that's going to pick this stuff up. Uh, and and it seemed to work. Uh, you know, I, I think there was comparable cost, wasn't it, Lloyd? I mean, you've done the number crunching on this as to how much the city workers uh, bill was and how much the GFL bill was. It, it was pretty much on the same page, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, the city contract, uh, the we self-performed cost of $108 per, home per year and the outside contract was a hundred dollars. So it was within eight percent. But now with a fifteen percent increase, um, it it uh it it throws things around and it's only going to get worse. A tie of the problem is we're only getting one bidder. Yeah. And when there's no competition, the contractors put the price up because they can still get awarded. You know, the uh if if you look at the garbage collection business, there's three driving costs. The number one cost of course is labor. And we all know the labor agreements settled just under 2% for the most part for 2020 and 2021. The uh second big cost of operating a, a garbage trucks system is the fuel cost. Fuel has gone down and gone down significantly. Yeah. And and the third big cost is the capital cost because you got to have the trucks. And I'm not aware of of uh, the automobile or truck manufacturers shoving prices way up or even the compactor shoving price up so this is market driven it's driven because they don't have competition is because they the big guys have bought up all the smaller guys and now there's no nobody else left to do this other than you know in this area it seems to be green for life and we're not the only one going through this i mean niagara saw a 36 percent increase in their collection costs and that's uh, the change going to every other week garbage pickup. And so it's it's 100% market-driven. And until we can find more competition, we got to get, now it's too late now because we boarded the contract for seven years last night. But the um, it's gone for seven years. And, you know, with this, all this uncertainty around is the province really going to take over curbside collection of the blue ducks? because of the they want the generator to pay for it. But the province has this handful with with coronavirus and other things right now. So there's a lot of uncertainty. But in the meantime, we're getting whacked
0: why do we always seem to get stuck in situations like this where the sole sourcing contracts and it's not the city's fault but it just seems to be the circumstance i mean the blue box problem has always been there uh, from the initial time that the city started with waste collection and blue box collection and recycling uh we you know we got messed around by one company that just remember they just pulled up stakes very quickly and, and said we're not doing this anymore and the city got stuck with a huge bill in this situation too is, right. is it the industry itself lloyd is that what's going on here
3: yeah. Lack of competition. It's all, it has been these mergers and acquisitions going on. So there's no players. So it's an opportunity. I mean, I did this as a, as a career was bid contracts. Yeah. And when you're, you know, you work up your costs, but then you market it and what's happening in the marketplace and what can the market bear? Um, I think they felt that they could get 15% through, uh, and so they shoved us up 15% even, even though their total costs have a worst, uh, Stayed neutral, and, and you know fuel. Just fill up your your gas tank, and you see we we're paying but a dollar ten, dollar last year. Now we're paying ninety cents, and and so there's a significant saving on that side. So it's simple lack of competition, and we're going to have to retool to probably bring this stuff in house unless that changes.
0: There are other companies, though, in North America. Are they not interested in, in, in expanding into markets like this? I mean, waste management and things like that. I mean, we've seen those, you know, advertised in, in different circumstances in other jurisdictions. It just seems as if these guys, uh, it's 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 almost like the cable companies now, you know. I mean, if you live at Ancaster, you're going to have Kojiko, whether you like it or not. And it just seems if you want your garbage picked up here in this area, in southern Ontario, it's going to be GFL or it's going to be city workers. There aren't very many options here.
3: Now the parity. There's four in our area. Seven actually picked up the specifications, but only two bid. And GFL's price was 23 million. I believe the next bid was in the low 30 million dollars per year. And and so when there's only two players, they can. Be careful what I say, but they can make arrangements.
0: Sure, they do. I'm and, not and suggesting that's happening, that's but it, it's, Lloyd, it's, it's the old situation. You know, how how come they are asking so much? Because they can. That's why. You know, and who's going to stop them?
3: That's just good marketing.
0: But it, where's the money going? I mean, because as you say, it's not as if their their costs have increased at all.
3: Well, it's a shareholder value.
0: And there's no re- no option here for city council. I mean, why not at least explore the idea of having the city do the whole situation?
3: Well, it's... Legal always gets in your way in this stuff because you put it out for tender and you could get sued. And and staff said that we don't have enough time to be able to uh, properly calculate what it would cost us to do it. And the first number they threw out was to do-it-ourselves $35 million. Well, that's a 75% increase. And yet currently, uh, the cost per household, there's only an 8% difference. So there's a lot of unanswered questions. But clearly... Um, the staff were not supportive of doing that. I tried a referral motion, but it didn't go, and it ultimately got awarded yesterday. So right, I, I got, I've got to get some clarity on this, though. I,
0: I want to get some clarity so our listeners understand where this is coming from. If, if I lived in downtown, uh, in Corktown, let's just pick a neighborhood, it's uh, by, on average, as you were saying, $108 per household to collect the garbage. And here in Ancaster, it's about $100. $100. So you are telling me that if the city was to do Ancaster, that they couldn't do it for the same price for 108 ducks? 108 bucks? Or
3: they don't know? That was their argument, but they, they don't know. I, I, it was hard to get a definitive answer in that yesterday. But at the end of the day, they said they they would have to purchase another yard to store all the trucks in at night. They'd have to buy all these trucks, buy all these compactors, and they just didn't feel comfortable doing that. And, and and have this thing operational by March 1st which is when GFL's contract uh, expires. So, so here's a, the don't scenario. Shoot, don't don't you know, don't shoot the messenger here. No, I, I get it. I get I, it. I don't agree with that. But the majority of council rules in a democracy and sure. they decided to 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 stay with GFL.
0: Because way back when, when this whole thing was decided to split this up and have partly private sector and, and of course, the city workers doing the other part, it was, at that time, a quote-unquote experiment. It was a, a, a trial program. It seems like we're stuck in it now. There's no way we're going to get out of
3: this. Well, it's 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 a good check and balance. Stuff. I mean, it keeps our own staff on their toes and it keeps the, the competitors on their toes. But um, it didn't work. It It didn't work because they you know, we just don't have time to be ready to take this thing over in a year but that's you know
0: there was lord do you remember the debate and i know that's maybe a little bit apples and oranges but uh, you know there was a time when when you know even our our wastewater system was was privately operated i mean we owned it but it was you know it was it was contracted out and a council decision at that time said, I don't care what it costs. They're not doing it well. We're going to take it in. And there was a significant cost for the city to bring it back in-house like that, and, and it still is in-house. Uh, sometimes you just got to suck it up and say that's what it's going to cost, but it's going to give us a more efficient system. The fact that the councilors wouldn't even have that discussion yesterday I find very, very disheartening.
3: Well, let's go back to water, wastewater. Our our own our employees are running at a lower cost than what it would have been with outside service, plus You know they're they're uh, they're not profit driven, so they don't cut corners, which is very important when you're uh, dealing with a waste product, an environmental something that could damage the environment. And they've done a pretty good job. You know, we had the C S O tanks uh, gate locked open, but uh, nobody knew about it. As soon as they found out, they instantly closed it, and and so. um, and i'm and, and going off topic a bit on you but our, our staff do a pretty good job in my view of running that um, that water wastewater plant
0: no they do absolutely and and i know that there was some con- discussion at that time saying can we really afford to do this because there is going to be a significant cost initially and they did the research they did their homework and they said yeah maybe but in the long term it's going to pay off and it did i it I, did. I don't understand why your colleagues don't have the same conversation about this Uh, You know, because as a a taxpayer, I'd be asking, well, is it more efficient if the city brought this in-house? You know, there's going to be a hit initially, of course, capital costs. But in the long term, is it going to be more efficient? The answer right now is we don't know. And uh, so they made a decision right now without all the knowledge. I mean, you and I have talked about this for years. As long as you and and, and the Ferguson family have been, uh, you know, council representatives, town council, city council, whatever it is, do the homework. In other words, make a decision based on the best information you can get. And your colleagues did not do that yesterday.
3: Well, the, the staff, in fairness to my colleagues, staff were telling them that it was going to, uh, to do it in-house because they hired a consultant to prepare a cost estimate. Uh, it was going to cost, it, it was going to be about a 75% increase in cost. It was going to go to $35 million And, and, and so we can get, have GFL do it for $23 million, even with a 15% increase. I just have trouble accepting that estimate. That's where I have trouble. Based on our actual cost. In performing this work right now for 108 dollars per home,
0: and just so we're clear here, basically staff were saying we don't have time to do all this work. We don't have time to crunch the numbers uh, because of the timelines for the contractors. That, was that the answer? That was part of it. Yes, but they knew the contract was coming up. I well, mean, they, for them they, to say for them to say on yeah, but okay. for them to say on May 27th, you know, we don't have time. Well, you know, if you'd started looking at this back in 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 March or April, might you might have had time. It, it, it's not. It's not like this just fell out of the sky and said, "Oh my God, we got to make a decision
3: about this." Well, that's trouble on council. Sometimes, it, when at many times against us, where are boxed into a corner.
0: No, I understand that. I understand that. But, but this is one of the things that uh, you know. We, I, I listened to some of your colleagues and some of the clips. I mean, you've you've heard some of them. Well, you were there for the whole meeting. And I understand the concern and you've just, I think outlined very, very uh, 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 correctly about the, the challenges that the city's facing right now because of COVID and because of these increasing costs that just seem to be piling up. But that means you, you know, you're going to have to spend money anyway. Of course, that's you know city's job. But spend it wisely and do the homework and make sure that you're getting the best return on investment. And uh, I don't know. When you see a thing like this and in the, in the way that, that staff prepared this, it's almost as if they said, okay, we don't want to do this. Now let's work backwards and justify why we don't want to do it.
3: In addition to that, Bill, this is the second time that the same company in three months. The municipal recycling facility was the first one.
0: Yeah. And you would have thought that, okay, you know, let's, let's to use your phrase, be a little more frugal about this and, and do our homework so we're making the best possible decision. Uh, but it's done. It's over and done with the contracts there. Council's already ratified this, so uh, we're stuck with the cost now, aren't we?
3: Aren't we, we? Yes, we are. It takes a two-thirds majority to rescind any council decision, and it won't happen.
0: Well, uh, they've already picked up my garbage as I look out the window here. They're going to come get the blue boxes in about another hour. I'm probably going to run out there in the news and shake the guy's hand and say congratulations on your salary increase.
3: Well, uh, go, go buy GFL stock.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, I know it's been a marathon session for you, Lloyd, and I understand you have a very important golf game coming up in a couple of hours, so I'm going to let you yeah, go no, now. That,
3: that's probably not going to happen with a 100% <laughs> chance of rain. No,
0: no, never uh, rains. Yeah,
3: I need some exercise badly.
0: never rains when you guys golf. Uh, Ancaster Councilor Lloyd Ferguson. Uh, stay well, Lloyd. Thanks so much for this today. Okay, Bill. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, it's it's the part of the frustration that we feel here, and, and I understand that, you know, the councilors doing what they possibly can here to try to save us a few bucks, and, and that's that's wonderful. But when you've got contract awards to make like this, and you see a significant increase, and I know staff have a lot of pressure too, but for heaven's sakes, do the homework and make sure that we're getting the best possible deal. And, and you know, it's, it's difficult sometimes. But they can only work on the information that they're given. And if, if they, they hired somebody who did a, a quick estimation and simply said, yeah, we, you're fine, just the way it is, let's just keep doing this, that's a significant increase. And you'd like to think that there's a little more diligence, due diligence that's going to be done in these situations uh, before they simply say, yeah, let's just sign off on this and uh, we'll have to deal with it later on. Because there are a lot more, Very, very pressing financial situations that council is going to have to deal with in the next little while.
1: You're listening to the Bill
0: Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Long-term care in Hamilton and uh, right across the province has been an ongoing issue for years and years and years. We have done numerous programs about this. Uh, There have been some tragic incidents that happened right here in our community. Uh, Probably, uh, though, it's it's on the front burner right now because of what's happening with COVID-19. And uh, yesterday, uh, Premier Doug Ford announced that uh, in response to the scathing report that was done by the Canadian military, who, of course, are assisting in in the operation of some of these facilities right now, uh, he announced that he was actually going to take over operation. The government, that is, is going to take over operation of some of those facilities. Here's what the Premier had to say.
3: Effective immediately, we have begun the process of taking over management of five additional homes in the system. That we are currently most concerned about. Those are Eatonville Care in Etobicoke, Hawthorne Place in North York, Altamount Care in Scarborough, Orchard Villa in Pickering, and Camilla Care in Mississauga.
0: The concern here uh, is many people are looking at this and saying, well, that's great, Mr. Premier, but this is too little, too late. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, uh, jane madis who is a barrister and solicitor uh, institutional advocate and advocacy center for the elderly Uh, jane thank you so much for the time i'm glad you could join us today
1: thank you for having me
0: i think one of the great tragedies in this whole situation as i mentioned in my preamble here we've been talking about uh, problems in long-term care for many many years when this report came out from the canadian military the reaction that i heard from so many people that have relatives loved ones in these facilities or even have people who work in these facilities said We've been telling you this for years. What we'll took you so long to catch up? This, that That's the ongoing tragedy here.
1: Absolutely. I think that it, uh, most of what was in the rep- report was of no surprise to anyone who has family, who lives in a long-term care home, um, and you know, who's worked in the area. Um, you know, This isn't to say that all homes have these kinds of issues, because it's, certainly there are lots of good homes, but um, these are the kind of complaints that we get on a daily basis in our office
0: there's so many aspects to this and so many different words we can travel down here to talk about what's going on here some of it institutional some of it i guess philosophical uh i saw a rather interesting article i read yesterday in one of the papers uh, that suggested that maybe this whole thing started this whole problem started when for some reason or another governments decided that uh, long term care was not going to be part of the healthcare system per se uh and, and so it's it doesn't have the same sort of oversight and that's the, i guess the key word here isn't it jane about oversight i mean the, the fact that that we don't pay much attention to it until we hear of a tragic situation.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's not part of the Canada Health Act, so there's no federal dollars. There's no oversight, you know, yeah. uh, the, some of those things that come through the federals. But, you know, in general, you know, uh, we, we look at long-term care, I think, as, you know, it really has become institutionalization. It's the dumping ground of our health system. If we don't know what to do with somebody, that's where we put them. Um, And it it is just a reflection, you know, know, we're talking about philosophical questions. It really is a reflection of our society of what we do with the elderly. We put them away and then we don't really think about them anymore. If you don't have a loved one in a long-term care home, um, you don't work in a long-term care home, you probably haven't been in one. Um, They're not really part of our communities. We shut them all away, we, you know, basically warehouse them. And, you know, that is part of a, a whole societal issue, and I think that also has to change. And plus, you know, what's going on with the ministry and, and you know, doing inspections and that sort of thing and, and really um, ensuring that we're properly funding and watching what's going on in these facilities because these people can't speak up for themselves.
0: Well, and therein lies part of the problem. And and you know, those of us that do or did have uh, loved ones in these facilities can understand the frustration. And it's it's difficult, really, I guess, Jane, to point fingers because you you can't fault staff necessarily because they're understaffed, usually underpaid in these facilities. Uh, there's an awful lot of stress involved in this, and a great deal of pressure on the people that are on the front line right there. And and they uh, are some of the loudest voices saying we need to do something about this, but it, it just seems to fall on deaf ears.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, part of the reason that there's so much stress in the system is because we don't have enough staffing. So, you know, we heard about lack of RNs. Um, the reason that there's a lack of RNs in long-term care, first of all, we only require there to be one in a facility. And even at this very moment, that isn't even a requirement. They have removed that from the requirements. You don't even have to have an RN now in the homes. Um, you have to have sort of something else that's sort of equivalent. Um, but we don't have RNs because... They can get um, paid better going to a hospital, going to other sectors, and it's not as much st- pressure and stress because they're the top of the chain. If they are only the, p- the only person in the home, you would be the, you know, the top of the food chain, um, and ev- all the pressure from that home would be on you. And um, you know, the support workers, there's not enough of them, so they're running ragged. Um, so we really, you know, no wonder there's a lot of stress and issues in long-term care because there's
0: not enough people to do the job. And, and, and when, in fact, uh, government does address this, which isn't very often, but there was an attempt to even be the Premier before he made this announcement yesterday, it's, it's Band-Aid solutions. I mean, it was identified that uh, you know the, the spread of COVID was partially caused by the fact that a number of those frontline workers were actually working in two, three or more facilities uh, and he said, "Well, okay, we're not going to allow that. It's, well, they're doing it because they don't get paid very much. I mean, they have they have bills too. Uh, we, you know, we we seem to be addressing this with short-term solutions, and that's not going to get this situation any better.
1: No, and that's why we, you know, we really do need the inquiry. I think there's some things that are going to be looked at. Uh, there's certain things that we know. We know that these old homes with the four bedrooms have got to go. We've known that for a very long time. They've been trying to do that since 2009. The government has to just move ahead and make decisions." Um, there's lots of materials out there that, you know, help them. They have their own um, standards. They may want to tweak them a little bit based on some of the new information that came out of, say, York University, a big 10-year project they did. But they can move on that, you know, quickly you'll get it started. Um, it's going to take a long time, though, to do that. You know, you have to rebuild buildings, move people around. That's going to be a long project. They can start funding it more properly. Um, they need to allow... Um, homes to have the staffing to provide the care for these very ill people and um, you know the people who live in long-term care aren't the people who lived there 20 years ago we have much sicker people in them and they require much higher levels of care and the money has to flow to ensure that we're providing that care and that you know will uh, do uh, a lot to re- uh, relieve the stress to provide better care um, you know People don't get turned at night because there's only one or two staff on, and they are busy doing a bunch of other things. Um, you know, So there's requirements, but they don't have the time to fill them.
0: Why don't we offer other options? I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, those that need to be in there should be in there in these facilities, certainly. But as you know, uh, I know you've done extensive research on this, of course, with the Advocacy Center. Uh, there are some people in there that could probably still be at home if there was proper home care, but we don't offer that. And again, we'll go back to the idea about staffing. Uh, I've talked to the, those advocates, and they'll say, look, it's very difficult to get a nurse to do home care, again, because of the situation, the stress of the situation. So there's, there's a staff shortage there. So that's not really an option for some people. But if it were offered, it might alleviate some of the stress on the long-term care facilities
1: absolutely we need you know we're a very reactive system when it comes to our care of our elderly so you know we see you know uh too many people in long-term care so you know we deal with it after the fact you know we're dealing with this all after the fact we need to prevent people from going into long-term care we need to provide home care we need to provide um, affordable mid-level care so we have retirement homes, but, you know, if you want to go into a retirement home that has a decent level of care, it's going to cost you probably minimum of 5000 to $6,000 a month and higher. Um, and for the vast majority of people, you cannot afford that. Um, and so we need to provide assisted living. So a retirement home-like kind of setting where you have uh, maybe meals provided, um, but you have your own apartment. You can still make your some of your breakfast or whatever you want to make in your apartment, but you have caregivers on site. Um, And that makes it cheaper as well because instead of a PSW or a nurse going from home to home to home, they're in a sort of a a congregate setting so they can go to a whole bunch of people. But it's not at the level of long-term care, but it would keep people healthier. It would keep them having autonomy, and we prevent them, many of them from ending up going into long-term care. We need to keep long-term care for just those who really, really require it. And we also need to provide help in the home for people who may be managing the home, or families who want to keep people in home but need that extra support, and it's just not enough right now. And you know that would do a lot to alleviate the pressure on the system as well, both in hospital and in long-term care.
0: Well, because I've heard from families, and I've certainly you have too, Jane, over the, over the time that you've been doing this, that said, look at uh, we can't really look after your grandma or whomever it is mm-hmm. at home uh, simply because of what we're doing but there should be an intermediary step a long-term care facility you put them in there and they say I don't really belong here mm-hmm. uh, and We're looking around there and that causes more mental stress on, on the families guilt and a whole lot of other things that start to come into the package right now and it's simply because we don't have that that health care infrastructure for them
1: absolutely we you know we don't have that mid-step um, british columbia does it's not a perfect system there are some issues with their system but they do have a bit of a mid-step and we really need that middle step, and we've been saying that for a long time because, you know, there are places out there that will say, well, we'll provide you with, quote, you know, sort of a retirement home at your, you know, twelve fifteen hundred dollars $1,500, whatever you get from old age security and the guaranteed income supplement. But they cannot provide anywhere near the level of care that people need, and, you know, those places can be problems or they're very heavily reliant on, on home care. And, and what we need is a funded system where you get that med-level care Um, And it would be much cheaper because it would be cheaper than long-term care and it would keep people healthier.
0: It it really comes down to investment, doesn't it? I I had the premier on the program a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we talked about this. And this was just around the time, of course, that that he told about the fact that you know his his mother-in-law, of course, is in one of these facilities in the GTA, and said, "Look, we really need to do something." And I said, "With all respect, Mr. Premier, I don't doubt your sincerity about this, but uh, the first thing you did when you became premier was you cut the the funding for these facilities and for the oversight of these facilities. I mean, uh, the the, the number escapes me, Jane. I think it's over 600 uh, facilities, long-term care facilities in Ontario." Only nine inspections were done last year so, out of 600. I mean, what so did he expect was going to happen?
1: Every home would have had an inspection, but they're not the full inspections. And you're yeah. absolutely right. They absolutely cut them. Um, you know, they, under the Liberals, they the Liberals had cut them to um, sort of doing what, a full inspection and an inspection light every year, um, but then they did, uh, this government just, totally pulled it back and said that, you know, as long as the home had an inspector in there during a year, that would be fine. It met the annual inspection because there was an inspector in the home. But what, you know, complaints and critical incidents is what, you know, uh, the minister keeps talking about these 3,000 inspections, but they are very focused things and they rely on people to complain or to report to the government. The nine inspections they had were these RQI, were the resident quality inspections, which are full home inspections. And they look at a whole um, vast array of things that, um, you know, give a picture of what the home is like um, overall and uh, look at things that people don't complain about. Most people don't know what infection control protocols are. We maybe know now a little bit more than we did, you know, four months ago, but... For the most part, people don't know, you know, what are they supposed to be doing, how are they supposed to be doing it. Those things can get caught in a resident quality inspection. People aren't going to complain as much about those things, and certainly the homes aren't, aren't reporting those to the ministry.
0: Absolutely. And, and, again, it comes down to the level of oversight that's going to be taking mm-hmm. place. I mean, as I mentioned in my commentary this morning, I mean, the fast food restaurant around the corner from my place here has more scrutiny than long-term care facilities. I mean, I know there's a big sign there, a big yellow, a green sticker that says, we've inspected this, it's okay. You can buy something here and eat it, and you're going to be okay. I'm not suggesting necessarily we have to have a sticker system in long-term care facilities, but but where's that level of scrutiny for the for our frail and elderly people? I mean, these, these are our, our friends, our relatives. our our loved ones, and we don't seem to to feel that they deserve that same level of of, of oversight and inspection.
1: Yeah, and that's been a pushback from the industry for a long time, saying, you know, we have homes that are doing really well. Why are you coming in and bothering them? you know, we should be providing care. But the problem is if you don't inspect, you don't know what's going on. And homes can change very quickly, and there's lots of good homes, and maybe they are inspected and nothing comes up, and yay for that. That's a great thing. Um, that doesn't mean it's not money well spent, because it is keeping homes, ensuring that they're make, you know meeting the standards. And that's a good thing, because people in long-term care don't necessarily all have families who can speak out. Even those with families or those in the homes that can speak out can be afraid to speak out. But these RQI inspections um, are proactive. They actually speak to the residents. They have to speak to 40 residents. They have to speak to family members. So it allows them to have that voice uh, that they don't necessarily always have. Yes, those options are open to them to complain, but many people are very fearful to make those complaints to the ministry because they're going to complain about a specific incident, and even though they're anonymous, the home is going to know who complained. So in an RQI, you're, you know, they're doing a vast uh, you know, survey of the home, and it's much less likely that um, people are afraid, and they actually are much more open and the the ministry looks at many more things and they're just not going to find things to say that these homes are meeting standards. How do they know that if they haven't been inspecting them properly?
0: Absolutely. History indicates here that you know we talk about this when when crisis and, and tragedies occur. You know there was a great discussion here in the Hamilton area about this uh, some years ago when we had a, a tragic incident at uh, St Joseph's Villa where uh, uh, one of the the, the in- patients actually died as a result of a beating they took from another uh, one of the uh, the, the residents yeah. in these facilities. But then it dies down after a little while. Uh, COVID nineteen didn't cause this; it exposed it. Uh, are we going to stick with it this time? Are we going to actually do something about it?
1: Well, I hope so. I think that, you know, this may be the the straw that broke the camel's back. I think that, you know, the the Premier has said that he will, you know, spare no expense in in fixing the long-term care system. Um, I think, you know, he probably is genuinely genuinely wants to do that. Um, But again, you know, again, it depends on how it actually all you know, sorts out, right? So if they still stick by, for example, that we don't have to do inspections every year um, in, quote, the good homes, I think that's going to be a problem. So we really need to decide how we want to provide that, you know, the appropriate level of care. Um, And the community has to decide whether or not they value the elderly. And I think that uh, this tragedy probably has exposed that more than any other in the past. Um, you know and I agree it's usually whatever it hits the front paper we've heard it you know we've heard it before with Wettlaufer we heard it you know in the in the early 2000s when the Toronto Star did a big expose Mm -hmm. um, and it does die down and we have to make sure that we continue to push the government um, which uh, and that you know they not only have an inquiry or commission or whatever it is they want to call it um, but they also follow whatever the recommendations are because you know Doug Ford is quite right these things sit on shelves and they don't get uh, applied and so he has to put you know the money where his mouth is he has to say i'm going to you know, put those implement any recommendations and the other you know parties have to say the same because this is a long haul and you know if there's a change in government someday in the future uh, those parties have to also be agreeable to make those changes whatever they are
0: well and they're in i know we're just about out of time mm-hmm. uh, you know, if we're going to look for accountability here, we have a role to play in that too, because uh, governments will do, by and large, what we demand of them. Uh, and if we demand this, uh, you know, there are there there are consequences. I mean, we on the one hand we want governments to spend as little money as possible because we want to keep our taxes down. And then they do something like this, and you say, well, look at what you've caused. Well, the government's got to think about this, but we have to say this is a priority. If it's going to take more money, fine. It's spend what needs to be spent to make sure that these people are going to be safe. I don't think we've given them that strong a message uh, consistently now. I hope it's coming to them right now, and it's, I guess the next step here is to see how they're going to respond to it.
1: I totally agree, and I think that you know this really, I think this report from the, Air, the um, Canadian Armed Forces um you know brought it to the to the fore it's brought that information to the public um you know the average joe doesn't go in and read public reports on the public reporting site um anonymized and sanitized though they are they do they do paint a picture of some of these homes and the problems that are there so we really have seen something that's come out in the paper but we've had issues before and you know yes it dies down and then it kind of goes away so we really as a society uh, if we want things to change, we have to keep that and push it, and and that is the only way it will change.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Jane Matus, uh, Institutional Advocate for the Advocacy Center for the Elderly. Uh, congratulations on the great work that you are doing uh, for the elderly, and uh, let's uh, hold their feet to the fire, and hopefully we're going to get some positive responses to this. Thank you so much for the time today, Jane.
1: Thank you for having me.